Good morning. I'd like to welcome our visitors this morning. Brother Pat mentioned we're in Hebrews chapter 10, <laughs> looking at verse 30. 30, that's right. <clears throat> morning as we look at uh, verse 30 it's really a uh, towards the end here of a completion of a thought that uh, really began many verses ago uh, but ultimately for its immediate context we'll look back to verse 26 as we have in the weeks previous uh, and we'll read there that we be reminded uh, why we are receiving the text and uh, what its purpose is. Verse 26 from Hebrews chapter 10, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Father God, as we have assembled this morning, Lord, out of obedience to your word and to your son, uh, Lord, and to that which you have spoken to us from the beginning, uh, God, we come in order to worship and to praise and to see the light of Christ shining through the text, Lord, that we may determine every conclusion and everything that we draw from the text as a whole from the person of Christ. We wish, Lord, to see him this morning, that we may worship and glorify and exalt his name, or that we may see what the natural man cannot comprehend. For one, Lord, it will result, as we know, in the salvation and sanctification of souls belonging unto Christ, but ultimately that it would reap a bountiful harvest of glory from man unto you, O God. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with the text, uh, with the lips of the preacher and the tongue, Lord, and with the minds of the congregation, uh, that we would see that which you have set before us as a feast. Lord, to enjoy 
uh, and to marvel and to consider your great wonder and power and divinity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cut my hair. This microphone doesn't fit so well anymore. This morning we want to look, as I said, at verse 30. It says this, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This particular verse is coming sort of as a conclusion to what began in verse 26 as uh, the statement is made, For if we go on sinning willfully. And after that, we see that there's an expectation terrifying as it is revealed of judgment uh, for the Lord's adversaries, for those uh, who deny the work and words and sacrifice of Christ. is depicted uh, from verse 26 to verse 29. And the question is posed there in the last week's examination of verse 29. How much severer the punishment do you think he will deserve? The question is not there, should he or will he deserve punishment? But the question is, how much severer do you think it will be he who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And then this morning we see, for we know him. The declaration has been made that punishment will be handed out and is revealed from verse 26 to verse 29, the wages of sin, that being death, but ultimately the wrath of God that abides upon the head of men who deny the Christ and the word of this living God. And this morning we see with the beginning of verse 30, it says, For we know him who said. And as always, uh, such small and short seemingly words can carry with them uh, such great uh, revelation, such great truth. And it is no different in this morning's text. I want us to begin by looking at the first word there. For. We have from verse 26 to verse 29 uh, those who are willfully sinning and now are to be looking for judgment and punishment uh, to be looking for this terrifying fire this terrifying condemnation and yet verse 30 says for we know him and the first words therefore serve as to remind us that there is evidence the word for is there to reveal that all that has been said in verses 26, 27, 28, and 29 are not just some new idea that come at the hand of uh, the penman of this epistle, but it is to remind us, rather, excuse me, that there is great evidence throughout the entirety of the text of Scripture that these things are necessary and reality for those who continue in sin. This morning, uh, as we look at the text, as it often seems that uh, it, it would be speaking to those who do not know the Christ. But the reality is that this is an epistle written to Hebrew people and it is, it is still alive today and preserved by God because it is as well for the church to be reminded uh, with the word for here that there is evidence, there is information already known to the church to the people of God, and it is in supporting favor of these things present in the preceding verses uh, for which this evidence is given. 
This evidence is uh, given here with the word for to remind us that God throughout all of time has revealed his justice and his judgment and his declarations of both uh, those who are found righteous and those who are found unrighteous. Here we see today the culmination of all that we have known. The word for here is indicating that there has been a constant foundation laid for the punishment of sinners due their sin. That is to say, uh, in maybe a more palatable way, that the word for here is giving us evidence and reminding us of it that God has consistently said the wages of sin is death, and he is not at any point reneging upon that which he has declared. It means that the church cannot take any liberty with the text of Scripture or with sin or what God has ever called sin and say that it is no longer such. Unfortunately, that is what many churches do. What was once unacceptable in the past is now acceptable in the church. What was once considered sin is now considered okay, and that is not acceptable. The word for here says and declares that God has remained unchanging. And we have evidence to support such. A constant foundation laid not only for the punishment of sin, but for the person and the character and the attributes and the expectations of God. This foundation has been laid since the very first word was uttered to man. And even uh, in some sense before man ever existed. For we have counts of this, accounts rather, of this God from nothing forming everything and speaking. And it resides within certain verses as they show us those things before man was created that God has retained and has always had the power over all things and sovereignty over all things that his will shall be forever done. A foundation is laid from the beginning and it's one that reveals most certainly the expectation of God that men should be found righteous and holy that is the expectation that is the benchmark that is set in Christ before man was ever created that there should be perfect righteousness perfect holiness in one sense if we understand that uh creation began from nothing and God was present eternally before that then it stands to reason before the earth and all of its inhabitants and creatures both uh, living and and living things and inanimate objects before they were created there was only God and there was only righteousness now why in the world do we think that God would in a in a universe so to speak where there only exists God and perfect righteousness why would he create so that there would be unrighteousness, so that there would be the exact opposite of holiness. Indeed, what we understand is that when God created his expectation for man was to be upright, righteous, and holy. At the very same time, his persons determine that the expectation of men may indeed be punishment should he be found sinning against God without the applied sacrifice of Christ. That is to say, God has had this expectation of men. 
that they be holy. And at the same time, he, may, he declares that men may have an expectation of him. If we be not holy and without Christ, the Son of God, if we deny the Father or the Son, therein denying both at the same time, we can expect that God will punish sin. As God expects righteousness, we can expect if there is a lack thereof, there will be punishment. Should we be found sinning? Should we be uh, found trampling underfoot this Son of God? Should we be found regarding as unclean this blood of the covenant by which, we was, uh, by which he was sanctified, as it declares back in verse 29? An insult to the Spirit of grace. Again, the word for is actually no small word at all, but it is a short word with a powerful ability to relay the message of the gospel. A short word with a powerful ability to relay the message of the gospel. That is that Christ is perfect righteousness, that man is something short of that indeed greatly fallen short of that but again that jesus is able to save from that this gospel is indicative that we may live only by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god and that is what the word for is appealing to for says but there is evidence to support this claim from verse 26 to 29, and even every claim before then. There's evidence to support such. We may believe that we don't live by simply one verse of the Bible or by our favorite verse, and we don't live by one commandment or by ten commandments, but all that God has revealed from his own mouth to man. What a great grace, what a great mercy. These inspired texts should this morning remind us that they serve as a trifold witness of the declaration of God's will for man. There is a witness of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that God has declared His will for man. His will for man being fallen man that he should be righteous, and that if he believe in the Son of God, that he should be saved, but as well his will for this God-man, very God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, before one man, before one object was ever created, that this man, Jesus the Christ, should come in the flesh, go to the cross, die, be buried, risen, and then resurrected and ascended, to save this mankind. In as many ways as the believer is to trust in those seemingly good promises of God, like we say, that we rest uh, in these everlasting arms of Christ, that we trust that when he says if we believe and we shall be saved, that we are as such. And if he says that he will deliver us, that we believe that. And those things are easy for Christians uh, with lips to reconcile, that we believe those things and we accept them, but in the same manner as we are to trust in those seemingly good promises of God, he likewise calls us to trust in the declaration of judgment that comes 
from God and the warnings contained in the text. So as much as you believe God when he says that he has saved you, you must as well believe when he says he is punishing sin that he is certainly doing that. He is doing that both temporally and spiritually, eternally. We know that there are some punishments for sin this side of heaven, this side of eternity, even uh, better stated. And for those who continue to sin willfully and trample underfoot the Son of God, those who deny the power of godliness, there shall be punishment eternal. The wrath of God, the presence of His hatred. Here we must see that we are to trust as well in the judgment of God and the warning of God the expectations of such judgment ultimately the text is a testimony again that god has done in times past god is doing in times present and god will continue to do in times future just as he has spoken he will do what that means is uh for the sake of the context of this morning's and and the last few weeks an uh, examination of verse 26 to verse 30 that we may ultimately see that God has punished sin in the past just as he has said God is punishing sin currently as we are seeing most specifically in America uh, it's very easy to see and God will continue into the future to punish sin what we see is there's no escape here at the will or at the hand of man by which we may uh, somehow skate around God's judgment. He has spoken and he will do. The burden of proof is now quickly and fully satisfied to an infinite degree with this small word for because it declares that there has been many proofs. Many proofs. And we're not waiting for God to prove that he will punish sin, but we are seeing that he has and that he will and that he is. Burden of proof is satisfied. But it does not end with the small word for there, the short word. It says, for we. Another wonderful declaration if we be counted uh, in the we, if we be understanding of who is to receive this epistle and what they are to glean from it. For we declares that this is no lonesome declaration. This is no single testimony. And this is no uh, characteristic given by one man by which we may see the gospel, but this is the light by which all men, the entire church, may read this verse and interpret it properly. Not a single testimony. But as sure as the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost have testified and we have seen with the word for, so as well does the church because it says for we, collectively speaking, a collective group of those who are being saved, being sanctified, and who are effectually already done so. The coupling of these first two words, for and we, extend their reach as they would together appeal to the ones who profess to be studious and of familiarity with the Scriptures. That is to say, when these two words, meaning for and we, as they come together, they no longer reach 
uh, just beyond their first definition, but together they extend their reach and they are now looking to those who are professing to be familiar with the text of Scripture and with the God of Scripture. And they are saying, for we as a group, for we must see, for we must understand, there is an appeal being made here. If you are really after God's own heart, if you are truly religious in the sight of God, there will be some understandings of this. There will be some claims to be made, and there will be most certainly those serious expectations, both of eternal life and of eternal death and torment. Should you claim to be a student of the Most High God, that is really uh, what is being said here. This is the appeal. Should you really be a disciple of Christ, you will understand these things. You will begin to see, not with the eyes of man, but with spiritual eyes. Then surely you have seen time and time again the fabric of Scripture woven together to create a continuous depiction of the character and the attributes of God. That is the great appeal. For we together, for we collectively see the testimony time and time again, never disconnecting from the person and work of Christ. We are seeing from Genesis now to Hebrew chapter 10 the testimony of Christ and the expectations of God in righteousness and in holiness. These reveal the character and the attributes, and they are expressed in the punishment of sin from verses 26 to verse 30. And in this case, most specifically, willful, habitual sin. Again, now let's read it together. For we know him. What a great separation for the we of the world and the we of the church. We know him. We put those all together for we know him. And we began to see that all of the text of Scripture, both individually, line by line, word by word, and now even collectively together serve to testify, not merely of historical events or biblical stories as we call them. And they don't serve these individual texts or the entirety of the text together uh, to simply tell of divine expectations. They don't tell us uh, about gaining riches or blessings or sin or punishment or good or bad merely. But they tell us of Him the appeal you see in verse uh, 30 was for we to say that there is a basis by which we understand the punishment of God built upon that which we have uh, understood. These Hebrew-speaking people at the time, uh, these Hebrew-minded people and these descendants uh, of the children of God, of Israel, as we would say, they had this historical basis by which they claimed to know God. And the appeal is made here, if this is indeed the case, if this is right, then you understand that these were not simply telling of Bible stories and riches and eternal life and all of the things that we so oftentimes make the topic of sermons and biblical study. 
but indeed the text actually have been testifying of him. It says, by these not do we only know of sin and punishment, but we know of him. The revelation of the judgment expectation upon willful sin is not just so that we know that judgment is coming, but the indication here is that from it we may know him. Not that we know simply that we can get eternal life. Not that we know that we can have righteousness. Not that we can know if we don't do these things we'll be, punishment, uh, we'll be punished. But rather that we would know him. For we know him. All of the text that these Hebrew people would have been familiar with were not serving so that they would know the law and so that they simply would not transgress against the law or so that they would have some sort of animal sacrifice to atone for sins. The reality is that they were written so that they would know him. For we know him, it says. They testify of him. Who is this him? It is him who has done all of the speaking. Him who has truly written all of the verses and chapters and books in every page and every line. Not Paul, not Job or Moses, not any of the major or minor prophets, not David, uh, who is accredited with many of the Psalms, not James, not Timothy, not uh, any of the other apostles or disciples which we think might have had some credit are Peter in pinning things. But this is God who has written and who has preserved. They testify of him, him by whom now he speaks and him who has done all of the speaking. This is a picture of a triune God. Most fully, this is him who saves Salvation being accredited to the will of God and sending his son into the person of God in the son who secured on Calvary's cross the payment for sin for those who believe in him. This is an appeal for we know him, God, an author, an executor of divine, temporal, and eternal will. God who is sovereign, God who is in control and all-powerful and all-knowing. One who is not able to be overthrown by the attempted thwarting of men or women or principalities or powers or rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the God who is not at all affected by those things. Those things and those powers are those which deceive men. Spiritual battles which must be won in Christ. Spiritual battles that are indeed won in Christ. There is no worthy adversary known, not worthy of expecting a possible victorious outcome over this hymn of who we speak. There are none who may challenge and find even the smallest of chances against our victor, our savior, and our friend. And that is who the text is speaking of. Those who are familiar with and now recall to mind Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you'll turn there. 
for we know him who said these things. Quoted uh, specifically from there. Deuteronomy chapter 32. going to begin looking verse 15 it says but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked you are grown fat thick and sleek then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation they made him jealous with strange gods with abominations they provoked him to anger they sacrificed to demons who were not God to gods whom they have not known whom they have not known New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. There they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the slowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield. And sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror. Both young man and virgin. The nursling with the man of gray hair. I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, that their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say, Our hand is triumphant, and the Lord has not done all this. For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and put ten thousand to flight? unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemy themselves judged this, for their vine is from the vine of Sodom and their fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasures, my treasuries, excuse me, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them for the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, and he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? And here is in Deuteronomy uh, the quotation which we see, for we know him who said these things, vengeance is mine. Those who were familiar with this exact 
text from Deuteronomy. They may profess, yes, we know him, and yes, we have escaped such a judgment because he has bestowed upon us the person of Christ through the gospel of Christ that we may live and die to sin. Yet, on the other hand, there are those who do not know effectually this Christ and who do not know effectually the means by which God has spoken through his Son and do not understand the text of Scripture for they think that they are simple stories. Some even think that they are false, that they serve only a temporal purpose. And now those who do not understand, they join the ignorant and the enemies of Christ who say what we have read in John chapter 9. Just a few pages away. John chapter 9. We're reminded of the response to this Jesus, the Christ, the God in whom we read of this morning. Says verse 24 so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him give glory to god we know that this man is a sinner he then answered whether he is a sinner i do not know one thing i do know that though i was blind now i see so they said to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes he answered them i already told you and you did not listen why do you want to hear it again you do not want to become his disciples do you They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Reality is, the text of verse 30 declares that for some, for we know him, and for others, they have seen and said, We do not know him. We do not know from whence he has come we do not discern from him spiritual things but we are angered and our anger is kindled in the revelation of our unrighteousness and our sinfulness and we are rebelling against him and that we would continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth tramplers of this son of god nevertheless they said for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay or in the king james it belonged unto me i will recompense this is the sovereignty of god being revealed to man the supreme and universal god the only one and true god the only god who has the right and the jurisdiction and the ability to punish sin and to forgive sinners stands to reason that from this text we may only see christ for the presence of christ denotes that we know him And we believe him and we trust that he will keep his promises, both those that seem good and seem bad, both of salvation and of punishment of sin and death and wrath and torment in hell. And at the same time as we are believing that, we are understanding that there are those who deny that and because of that they will see such condemnation. A terrifying expectation 
that even if you somehow partially believe in this Christ, as we see in John, that some believe but not unto salvation because they were scared, they feared the Jews. The understanding is that if you believe at all, then you will see that there is a true expectation of judgment, that God will not simply allow sin to be present and never punish it, and that it is not hidden from him we know from the garden. God has always seen and will always see each and every detail of our lives. And yet, like what we saw with Adam, it is God who is there with a sacrifice. God who is there to cover, not with leaves and things that will decay and become brittle, but with true skins. And not at this point of of animals by which he will cover Adam and Eve, but we know that he is covering now with the righteousness of Christ that does not decay and does not uh, fall, does not tear, and is not quickly or in any way degraded. The reality is that we know vengeance belongs to him, and if it belongs to him, he most certainly will see it through. He is powerful, he is forgiving, and at the same time, he is just, and he is righteous. We have a picture here, not only of, of, of salvation and condemnation, but we have a picture of a triune God existing in the person of Christ, in the person of God the Father by whom he has spoken, uh, through these sons, these Hebrews, or to these sons in Hebrews, by the prophets in times past, by their fathers, and now through Jesus the Christ. And it says, uh, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Saith the Lord. Not a man, a mere man, not an idol or figment of man's imagination or a God of his own making, but a powerful, triune, eternal, all-knowing, omnipresent God, the God of old, the God of their fathers, the God who had delivered from their uh, captors and who had walked them through the wilderness, the God who provided at every turn those who revolted and those who rebelled and those who sinned against him he did and he shall and he will continue to punish vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge his people by which we ask and we see now do we make christ jesus our lord as many quote-unquote good Baptists would even say, you must make Christ Jesus your Lord. Here he says, and again, the Lord shall judge his people, his own people. And this is not speaking merely of, of saved people, but this is speaking of particularly unsaved people. And it denotes to us that all of creation and all of man is under the sovereign rule and authority of God that he cannot be made Lord, but he is Lord. But God here 
is pictured as vindicating his people. As we saw in Deuteronomy, he's also uh, a just punisher of sin. He's worthy of his word, the truth by which he declares that he is able to save. And we read it this morning uh, when we were looking at Romans. We saw it there that it was revealed to us that although the mind wants to serve God, the flesh is serving itself and there is sin, yet at the same time God is not forsaking. He punishes those who turn from his goodness, who turn from his righteousness, but those who continue to gaze upon him, even though there may be instances and there will be instances of sin, God is faithful when we are faithless. Those who willfully sin after understanding what he expects. Those who nullify the blood of this covenant as it was regarded back in verse 29. They will see condemnation. The reality of that is though this side of heaven we see it oftentimes as a terrible thing. We will rejoice at the justice of God. For it will be unto us another testimony that he is true. When every man lies, that he is consistent, that he is good, that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he has not one time let someone slide by, that he has not been biased, as we think, in the terms of the world. I can remember uh, when I still had my shop open, people would all the time ask me to go against policies and even at the time, I didn't understand it completely as such a biblical principle. I'd always tell them, listen, I can't do it because if I do it for you, I have to do it for everyone. That would make me inconsistent if I did otherwise. This morning we have pictured for us a consistent Savior, consistent in all who confess his name, he will save, and consistent in all who trample him underfoot, they shall see the wrath of God. Again, the Lord will judge his people. Those who deny, those who walk away, they're guilty of crucifying Christ. He will take vengeance. It is not for man. This morning we may see uh, that that is ultimately good for us as Christians good for us not that we should be unjust or that we should look past earthly justice but we shall recognize that justice comes from heaven it comes from god and that if god is taking uh, the proper opportunities to punish sin as he sees fit and as he has declared it gives no opportunity for the flesh to say i am better than he i am greater than someone else who has sinned it gives us a time to introspectively look at ourselves and say that we are unworthy of the salvation. But yet God is true and that he is faithful and that he is continuing to save. It gives no uh, time nor place uh, for earthly judgment for, but for divine wisdom that we would rely not upon self but upon God. Here as we uh, reach the end of verse 30 we may be uh, consumed by this overarching theme of punishment for sin but we must ultimately be consumed by this blood of the covenant 
for it is that which is revealed to us in the person of Christ. It is that of whom this text speaks. It is that of, uh, of whom which we see is appealed to throughout this verse 30. But we know him. But we know him. We know him when others do not. This is a grace of God. This is a, a mercy of God. This is an opportunity for the people of God to not dwell upon the punishment of sin, but to dwell upon the goodness of God. But to result not in despair and grief, but to rejoice in trusting a good Savior. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your word, we pray, Lord, that we would never end a scripture or a thought upon a scripture or a text or a chapter or a book or without lastly turning our gaze upon the cross to see the goodness of our Savior, to see that he is just, he is merciful, he is holy, he is omniscient, he is all-powerful. God, to see that Christ contains within his person all of the attributes of God because he is indeed God in the flesh. Lord, that we would be assured of salvation, but more importantly, that we would be assured of his person for we know him, for we have seen him from Genesis, Lord, to Revelation. And you are constantly, to those who belong to you, revealing him and him alone in the scriptures. Lord, it is our prayer today that you would continue to do that and that you would uh, so liberally reveal to us the person of Christ, Lord, that we may walk away from each meeting and from each reading and contemplation of the word knowing him more. Lord, not for our own sake, but for your glory and for your honor that it may, may reap eternal benefits, of course, for us in glory because we will be present reigning with the Christ, but ultimately that he would receive the glory and honor and the exaltation which is due his name. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, Lord, that you would receive our worship this day, that you would bless the meal that we would have together in the fellowship, that we would have all things in common uh, for the sake of the church and ultimately for the sake of our Savior and for your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.